Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. My guest today, Jan Steckel, along with his research collaborator, Michael Jacob, are coordinating a series of global case studies to understand the non-economic factors associated with investment in coal-fired power. We know that countries around the world sometimes favor coal because it's cheaper. But their research aims to pinpoint some of the political forces that drive investment in coal. Their research examines what interests and actors make investment in coal, or sometimes divestment, politically so attractive. And in so doing, they identify possible entry points for policies that can nudge countries away from coal. Their series of global case studies includes over a dozen countries with collaborators from all corners of the world using a political economy framework developed by Jan Steckel and Michael Jacobs' team at the Mercator Institute. And Jan Steckel is head of the Working Group on Climate and Development at the Mercator Research Institute on Global Commons and Climate Change. He joins me today as part of a series of episodes that showcase the research and work of the Sustainable Energy Transitions Initiative, SETI. SETI is an interdisciplinary global collaborative that aims to foster research on energy access and energy transitions in low- and middle-income countries. Currently, SETI is housed at Duke University, where it is led by Professors Subrendu Patanayak and Mark Juland. To learn more about SETI, follow them on Twitter at SETI Energy. And now here is my conversation with Jan Steckel of the Mercator Institute. Basically, we see new coal investments all over Asia. So, of course, this is largely dominated by China, but it's not only China, it's uh, also India, and it's all kinds of um, newly industrializing countries on the continent, including Vietnam, including Bangladesh, including Indonesia. Uh, This is the countries where we currently see uh, coal investments uh, going on and still One point that you make in your research, and and that is pointed out in a number of papers that you've written, is that if these coal investments are seen through, they would basically eat up the entire carbon budget forecasted in the Paris Agreement. That's right. It always depends a little bit on on various factors, right? So uh, nobody knows how long a coal-fired power plant that is um, built today or planned today will run uh, in the end. But usually, like looking into um, historical lifetimes, and we would say, well, a coal-fired power plant on average runs about 40 years. And if we take this as a basis, then we have to say that uh, what is currently under construction and in the pipeline, so that is what is announced, what is in pre-permit or just permitted, has the power to like seriously challenge 
the available carbon budget that we still have to achieve the 1.5 target and also will make achieving a two degree target quite um, uh, difficult. So let me just illustrate you this by a, f a few numbers, if that's all right. So, Please. Um, so um, for achieving 1.5 degrees, so it depends a little bit how you calculate, and there are, of course, uncertainties. But um, so we still have about 400 gigatons that we can put into the atmosphere. Imagine that, like, uh, we have a certain budget that we still can put in the atmosphere to achieve those temperature targets. Uh, don't name me down to the particular gigatons. As I said, there are uncertainties, but this is about 400 um, gigatons for 1.5. So what is currently expected to be emitted from the existing fleet of coal-fired power plants is 200 approximately. So this eats up 50%. And what we have in the pipeline uh, is about... Um, 75 gigatons if we include the plants that are shelved so uh, we already have, don't really know whether they will be built in the end it's around 100 gigatons so you and, and this is just coal this is not anything else this is not considering the transportation sector it's not looking into natural gas it is not looking into other sectors such as buildings etc it's just coal and uh, you can see that this is uh, actually then shrinking the, the available rest for all the other sectors to a, to a real minimum. If these coal plants come online and last as long as you might expect them to last, that's it. That, that's basically, you can, you can kiss the Paris targets goodbye. Basically, yes. But as I said, like this hangs on the critical assumptions that coal-fired power plants run those 40 years. Mm -hmm. um, if, if we manage also looking into the existing fleet to shut down plants early. And this looks a little bit more relaxed. And I mean, there is, I mean, there is nothing that, that from an economic point of view, or a technical point of view would tell us this is absolutely impossible. So uh, we always also need to see these numbers from this perspective, right? There are kind of, you, you can think of policy instruments, you can think of other factors that um, make uh, people shut down those power plants early, but we will need to see that in the next uh, 10, 20, uh, 30 years uh, if we want to achieve the, um, the Paris targets. So you've done some cutting edge research on some of the sort of politics surrounding investment in coal in some of the countries that you cited earlier in Asia and why um, these countries keep investing in coal for their energy. Before you discuss the political dynamics that make coal attractive in these countries, can you just discuss some of the economic reasons why coal remains an attractive investment in some of these countries compared to, say, renewables? Yeah. So if you compare renewables to coal, then people often just look into, let's say, the life cycle cost of electricity over the entire lifetime. Um, but we need to be careful here that um, if you look into coal versus renewables, then you have very different cost structures, right? So the, the costs of renewables basically all come up front. 
you build a wind turbine and then that's basically is yes you have a little bit of operational maintenance cost but this is actually a, a minor part so basically that also means you have to put the money on the table up front for coal-fired power plant that looks very different so a lot of the money you have to spend over the lifetime uh, is in the fuel so that means um, that you need to finance uh, per whatever, kilowatt or gigawatt of capacity, you need to finance less upfront. Why is that important? It's important because whereas in the US and Europe, we have very low interest rates at the moment. For us, it's easy for European and US investors in the US and Europe, it's easy to get capital. Um, also, like institutions are, are working there more or less stable uh, regulatory frameworks, etc. So this all actually brings down the risk for the investors. This is a totally different story in a country like Vietnam or uh, Bangladesh or Pakistan. And here, like investors need to uh, pay really high interest, risks are high, that also leads to uh, high capital costs in the end. And then actually the, the balance uh, tips and uh, coal can actually, based on these factors, uh, still be attractive. Uh, but economics is not the only reason that coal remains attractive in many of these places. Your research demonstrates some of the political dynamics that um, make countries continue to in invest in coal. Can you just describe... Um, you know, what the sort of political forces at work are in, say, a country like Vietnam, which I know was a case study of yours. Why is it uh, beyond the economic factors that politics uh, are in favor of coal investments right now? So um, before I answer this question, let me just uh, shortly sketch how we think about this problem, because I think it then also helps in, in understanding a little bit better um, how we or what we understand uh, under these politics and, and political economy factors that lead to uh, continuous um, uh, coal investments. So we basically imagine this decision process to be very much um, a focus of, or like very much driven by the um, objectives that um, particular political actors have. What do I mean by this is that uh, we imagine or like we build a, a framework or a model where we say, well, um, we think or we assume that all kinds of political and societal actors have multiple objectives, such as, for example, um, they want economic growth, they want electrification, etc., etc. However, how they weigh these different objectives is different. And this depends on the context of a country, it depends on which societal actors they feel are most relevant for them. Give, let me give you an example. More left-leaning, maybe social democratic politician will, of course, be interested in uh, growth in like flourishing industry, etc. But they, they will particularly listen probably to what unions have to say. We went to various countries um, 
um, in total 18, and applied this framework, talked to people and tried out, tried to find out what are actually factors that are uh, now relevant for uh, coal being so sticky. The interesting thing now is that, like in Vietnam, there, are, for example, um, one very important objective for policymakers in Vietnam is not only cheap electricity prices, but also availability of electricity. Because actually, you have to imagine that the ruling party, the Communist Party of Vietnam, feels to be uh, basically kind of like having signed, like nobody said this that explicitly, but it often came up that they feel a little bit like having signed a kind of a deal with the people of Vietnam. So we rule the country and we basically have set up a more or less authoritarian regime, but we also guarantee growth, we guarantee development, we guarantee that basically uh, Vietnam is prospering, and it is. Um, so for them, it seems to be extremely important that uh, people can afford electricity, that people have access to electricity, etc. And I think the nightmare or what also we could find out of this um, interview, some actually, some interviewee said, okay, it's all about keeping the lights on. So the nightmare is that uh, they, they have blackouts. And there's a couple of reasons to believe that this is not so unlikely in Vietnam, given that uh, quite, uh, quite a bit of their power system relies on hydro, and uh, the functioning of these hydro dams um, uh, is dependent on an increasingly unstable monsoon season. Uh, and also they have um, like it, a disparity between like the, uh, the, where the electricity is needed, the growing industrial centers in the, in the south and where it is generated more on the north. Um, that said, um, this is extremely important for them. At, this, at, this, at, the, at the same time, Vietnam is um, they are under high cost pressure. This is one thing. The second is that, uh, let me put it like this, it's a revolving door policy between the re regulator and the utility. So people know each other. They know each other from the same universities, the same party academies. They know that they will actually have but they will be in the position of the guy they are currently regulating maybe in one or two years from now. They will not make, uh, make uh, this guy's life particularly difficult uh, from, a, from a regulating perspective. And um, then there is also quite, um, and this is not, not only true for Vietnam, but one thing, and it is, of course, difficult to find this out in those interviews, but uh, let me offer you my personal view on this. And this is, you can make a lot of profit out of coal, personal profit. Um, profits from, you know, um, it does not necessarily be open corruption, but it can be, you know, where a coal-fired power plant is sited. You know it in advance, so you might buy the land, which all of a sudden increases incredibly in value. You you know that there might be a coal-fired power plant uh, built in a certain area, but there is no transport uh, transport uh, company in place that can actually deal with with shipping coal or organizing the construction. So you make sure that you will be the one who owns uh, this company, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
So this entire um, grid of vested interests is so strong that it goes very deep down into the regulation. So and stabilize actually um, coal in a way that is that coal really has an advantage over other technologies. For example, in Vietnam, um, we have observed that um, like the like for independent power producers that wanted to go into Vietnam, like if you were interested in building coal, you got a contract that guarantees you that your electricity will be bought and fed into the grid for the next 20 years. If you did the same for renewables, it was only guaranteed for one year. So this has, of course, incredible consequences for uh, the risk premiums you have to pay and for the attractiveness of this investments. I mean, it just sounds like many of the forces that you are describing are aligning in favor of coal to the um, exclusion of renewables, whether that's for, you know, completely legitimate political reasons. You know, they, the, the Vietnamese Communist Party wants to be responsive to its people, make sure there are no blackouts or power outages. They want to increase energy access to their people. But there's also um, these other kind of informal reasons that you describe that also uh, apply pressure in favor of of coal and against uh, other other renewables, um, like are these dynamics that you find in Vietnam also present in other countries in the region uh, that you said earlier are also those countries that are investing more heavily in in new coal development? Absolutely. So this is not, and this is actually one of the most surprising findings for me because. Um, when I thought about this before, I thought, okay, we probably will find some clusters um, that that work along, let's say, maybe the political system. So democracies like Indonesia, it might work differently than uh, than from Vietnam, which is a more centralized, maybe also more authoritarian regime. But I'd say this is not necessarily um, a, a good explanation or, or put it, Putting it differently, those countries are, when you look into the mechanics of the political economy, invested interests, etc., what stabilizes coal, they are remarkably similar. So um, maybe it is a little bit more open and openly discussed in a country such as Indonesia, but um, like very similar dynamics are going on there. Um, and um, let me just give you an example in terms of vested interest. So we found that in India, a couple of hundreds of the legislators in, in, in the federal parliament had direct ties to the coal industry. The same is true in Indonesia, where basically coal oligarchs are sitting in parliament and making the laws that are supposed to regulate themselves. In Indonesia, though, being a coal exporting country, like one aspect is important and this is the role of coal rents and revenues so coal is one of the major export commodities of indonesia stabilizing the the budget and um, this money plays in a very important role in kind of balancing various regional interests and so like there's a very complicated way how those revenues of coal are allocated not only across the regions that um, produce coal but also across the entire country 
Um, but still, I'd say that um, even though this might be a particularity of uh, the exporting countries, an underlying uh, reason, and that is the role of regions, can again be found um, in many countries. Let me give you an example why this is so important. And I think this is important when we think about also towards policies to phase out coal, right? Um, so why is it so difficult to, to get rid of it is that even though there are, there might only be very few people that benefit from coal today, often they have an extremely good lobby or there are institutional um, channels to make them hurt, uh, make those people who would lose from the transition uh, be kind of, let's say, overemphasized in the overall political process. And this is nothing that is maybe particular to, um, uh, to developing countries. We have very similar dynamics uh, here in Germany and I think also in the U.S., Oh yes, our, our coal-producing states are are barely yeah. populated, but have equal representation in the United States Senate as um, everyone exactly. else. So yes, and nothing like I am unaware of. With a split Senate, right, and like the yeah. basically the senator of West Virginia becoming the, the kind of the marginal vote, right? So let's mm -hmm. see how, uh, uh, how the co-president we call him. <laughs> the co-president, yeah, exactly. No, and. Um, I think this is something, and this is also something that I take from from this research, is that even like because it, if we if we take a too aggregated view on the situation, saying well, why is it the problem with coal? It is dirty. It is expensive. We can phase out. We can phase it out easily. There are alternatives available, right? So, I mean, why sh like if you think of decarbonization and achieving Paris, et cetera, like from, from, from a larger picture. And this is also what can these models tell us that, that look into that and yeah, phasing coal, phasing out coal actually is the no brainer of it, right? So you, you basically build renewables or other low carbon uh, electric, electric, electricity generating um, technologies and, and that's it. And let's focus on uh, sectors that are more difficult, but that's uh, that's actually not the case. If you look into the into the details, if you look into the regional dynamics, if you look into the political economy. Well, well, well. So then, to that end, I mean, what does your research suggest to you about um, about what the international community might do? to change some of the political incentives in a country like Indonesia or Vietnam away from the current structure, which is all lined up in favor of coal? Like, are there any um, potential areas for, you know, international intervention in some way that might, that might nudge, uh, nudge politics away from coal? I think one important one is the, um, basically providing or helping to provide the finance, um, provide the technology, make sure, and, and this says there's more to it than just uh, just phasing out finance to coal, which by the way is uh, also uh, an issue that 
we didn't discuss much about here, but like there is still also large financial flows stemming from OCD countries and going into these coal-fired power plants. Um, but actually providing um, cheap loans uh, for not only um, renewables themselves, but also for the uh, infrastructure that is um, surrounded with it. So, uh, for example, think of, of the of the transmission and distribution grids, uh, think of storage, uh, etc. But this is just the technological part of it. Uh, the other is that we, I think, need to assist those countries in finding ways how to manage those transitions politically. And that means, in the end, how to buy out the losers. And uh, this might not always be nice. So, because I think it, it has various dimensions to it. It has one dimension for sure, let's say the dimension, the first order dimension, if you like, it's the workers, people who are employed in the coal industry today. But usually that's not so many people. And uh, um, however, often in, in those regions, there are very little alternatives. Uh, for example, if you look into India, and you find, okay, uh, a lot of people are employed in the coal uh, sector in the poorer uh, eastern Indian regions. The new jobs uh, in renewables, for example, they would be in the south or in the west of the country. So those countries, will, those people will probably not uh, profit from them. Buying out the losers. The idea is you just provide some sort of soft landing for um, people displaced by a move away from coal. That's right. However, have in mind that, um, I mean, this is already difficult in a country like Germany. We had a huge discussion about this. We're spending billions and billions of euros for, uh, for doing this and uh, for, in the end, providing a soft landing for a couple of 10,000 people, which is uh, very minor given the, uh, the total labor force we have but still i think it is important to 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 help them designing uh, those soft landings as you say but this is only one side of the story the second is um and this is something that that popped up in so many countries and this is the issue of cheap electricity also with regard to households because coal still is a way to provide relatively reliable and uh, cheap electricity for households and for firms, of course, but for like um, kind of compensating those households that would be hit hardest by a potential at least short-term price increases, I think is also important. The third is to somehow deal with the question of, yeah, how to compensate the industry uh, not only the coal industry, but also the, the industry that um, that is somehow related to the sector. Think of heavy industries such as steel um, that sometimes rely directly on, on the coal sector. And I think like managing those transitions is not at all easy. And the international community, by providing funds, but also knowledge, I think could help uh, tremendously here. Uh, well, Jan, the research is absolutely fascinating. Uh, I'll certainly post links to it in the show notes. And thank you so much for your time. This was great. Thank you. Uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity. And 
All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Jan. And thank you to Seti for collaborating with the podcast around this series. You can view other episodes in this series by going to globaldispatchespodcast.com. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time. Bye.